0: And now, more educate on talkzone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson.
1: Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to the show and our continued discussion of improving schools. My next guest, Karen Chenoweth, is writer in residence at the Education Trust. She recently co authored with Ed Trust Director of Research, Christina Piakis, Getting It Done. Leading Academic Success in Unexpected Schools, A Careful Study of the Beliefs and Practices of Effective Leaders of High Poverty and High Minority Schools. Getting It Done builds on two previous books by Chenoweth, It's Being Done, Academic Success in Unexpected Schools, and How It's Being Done, Urgent Lessons from Unexpected Schools. She has spoken widely about her work, including at the National Title I Conference, Iowa Governor's Education Summit, the Illinois Coalition of High Schools, the Learning for- Forward National Conference, the American Federation of Teachers Quest Conference, and with Christina Theakis at Western Kentucky University, Rutgers University Camden in New Jersey, and the Hume Region Principals Conference in Melbourne, Australia. Before joining Ed Trust, Chenoweth wrote a weekly column on schools and education for The Washington Post, before that, she was senior writer and executive editor for Black Issues in Higher Education, now diverse. As a freelance writer, she wrote for such publications as Education Week, American Teacher, American Educator, School Library Journal, and The Washington Post magazine. Karen, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah, great. I appreciate you being on. Uh, Karen, let's start with uh, why... Don't you think it unrealistic for us to expect schools to educate all kids to high levels of achievement?
0: So this is is kind of a central question for for educators, I think. Um, And first of all, the science is there. We know from decades of research on cognitive development, on brain development, on kids, that the brain is very plastic. We don't really understand fully the limitations on learning that different people have. We know everybody has sort of different abilities, but we don't really understand what the limitations are. And what we've found, what what has been found over the decades, is that kids rise to the expectations that we have of them for the most part. I, I think there are always principals and superintendents who... And teachers who, who think immediately of the child with severe cognitive disabilities. And there are a few. There is a very small percentage of students who may not be able to reach high standards. That is not the vast majority of students. The vast majority of students can reach higher, much higher standards than we ever thought were possible in the past. So, The science is there, and I think the educational practice is there as well. I personally have visited dozens of schools with what are considered challenging demographics. Students live in poverty, students of color, um, and they are achieving at very high rates. We have to marry the research and the educational practice To really understand how to to move kids forward but if we do that we're going to be able to do that you know if we if we marry the research and the practice we're going to be able to get just about all kids to meeting very high standards
1: and what I agree with you 100% that um, all kids can achieve at high levels and in fact I use my own personal experience in my book, Mugglemore. I use my personal experience as a case study where my neighborhood school was two years behind the school I was bused to in the 70s. And the only difference was that the expectations at the school I was bused to were a lot higher than expectations at the school that I came from. So the, the success was just simply based on the fact that they believe we can achieve higher and they expected us to achieve higher. Um, is this what you have found actually concrete research to uh, confirm.
0: Yes, but it's. I mean, what I say is, it's not like Tinkerbell. It's not just if you believe and clap hard, um, uh, you know, you'll you'll achieve. Kids who come in behind need extra help, and and it depends on you know what their issues are. Um, for example, a lot of English language learners come in with very little English sometimes with very little language at all they're going to need some specialized help um, in order to achieve high standards it's not simply a matter of expectations but the ex but it's the belief that kids can achieve and the belief that teachers can help the kids achieve that drives the work it 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 fuels the work so that so the teachers are able to actually go and do the work. If teachers don't believe that kids can do it, they're going to give up because, you know, why should they work so hard? Why should they work their hearts out if kids aren't going to achieve? If they believe that the kids can achieve and that it's their responsibility to figure out how to get the kids to achieve, well, then they're going to do that extra work. Um, The way I put it is if, if you don't believe you can, you know, Build a bridge across a roaring river. You're not going to test the designs. You're not going to test the materials. You're not going to do the work that's necessary in building that bridge. You're just going to stay on your side of the uh, of the river. So, yeah. the belief drives the work, is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, and I and I concur because, and although the uh, expectations were high, they had to do a lot of work to get me. <laughs> to where I was supposed to be. So they made me repeat a grade. They gave me extra reading help. They did what was necessary to get me to catch up to the other students. There but at least go. they they started from a premise that I could, as opposed to uh, simply placing a label on me, which is uh, often too common now, and, um, and and therefore absolving themselves of the responsibility of getting me uh, to that level that I should should attain.
0: Exactly. Um, That's exactly right. So, I mean, you came in Not knowing your multiple, you know, I don't know exactly, but, you know, you came in to a grade where the other kids had learned their multiplication tables and you hadn't. Well, you had to learn them, right? Mm -hmm. But if the teachers say, oh, well, you're behind, but you have to, you know, if you do this work, you'll catch up. That's a whole different way of talking to a kid than, oh, well, you should have learned that already. Mm -hmm. Period. End of story. Right, <laughs> I mean exactly. that's discouraging. That and and kids do rise or sink to the expectations that are placed on them, and mm. you're you're a perfect example of that.
1: No, thank you. Uh, now, what has your research shown to be important levers to improve schools?
0: So, um, so I started this work of identifying high-performing and rapidly improving, high-poverty and high-minority schools about. Well, back in like 2005, and in 2007, I published it's being done. That identified about 25 characteristics of these schools. So, you know, very simple. They teach the kids. They're nice places to be. Um, the principals are always in the building, or as in the buildings as much as possible. These 25 characteristics and. Educators kind of fought back saying, you have not given us enough information. So in 2009, I published how it's being done, which goes into much more depth uh, in, in eight case studies of schools, high-performing schools. And what I found was that they, although they were very different, they were different in size, in locale, in demographics. Some I had, you know, I had visited an all-poor, all-white school, and uh, uh, an all-poor, all-African-American school, and integrated schools, you know, lots of different types of schools, large, small, rural, urban, but they all shared five basic processes, and those processes have to do with they focus very closely on what kids needed to learn, um, and by that they usually focus very closely on their state standards. A couple went beyond their state standards, but mostly they focused on their state standards. They um, used formative assessment to to really figure out who's getting it, who's not getting it and then um, uh, you know, I've gone through these five uh, procedures so often. hold on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's okay in fact i I remember i remember I just read your article recently, and you include those the those five pillars. however, you also discussed the fact that we all know this in as, as educators, but we have certain obstacles in the way of us um, actually implementing it and putting it in place. Can you share with us some of those obstacles
0: right so 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 the the basic five pillars if That's actually a nice uh, uh, word that you just used. Keep the focus on what kids need to learn. Collaborate on how to teach it. Use the results of um, classroom and district formative assessments to see which kids got it, which kids didn't, which kids need enrichment, which kids need extra help. Then find patterns in all the available data to improve instruction and and build personal relationships so that students trust teachers and parents teachers, and administrators trust each other. Those are kind of the five basics. And none of them are surprised to educators. Educators know this. They've known it for a long time. The research is pretty clear about all of these. None of this is like in opposition to a large body of research. But education schools, the way they've been organized, have um, kind of built-in obstacles to these. For, for example, um, what are kids supposed to learn? We're now in a huge national fight about Common Core standards, mm-hmm. which don't even get to the level of, well, they should read Tom Sawyer or they should read Charlotte's Web. You know, I mean, they're simply very uh, general standards about kids should understand what text is uh, and they should understand prose the difference between prose and poetry and so forth. Um, So we have a very hard time in this country identifying what kids need to learn. So right there, that's an intellectual challenge. But even if there are good state standards in place that really help guide that question, we still have all kinds of internal obstacles like uh, what one principal I know, called hobby teaching. You have the third grade teacher who has taught Charlotte's web forever and she's not giving it up just because the second grade teacher says, you know what? It's really a second grade book and we're going to study Charlotte's web. So that kind of hobby teaching um, has been endemic to education. And it's not that it's been a bad thing because Teachers have brought some real passion to those particular topics or those books or whatever, but it makes for a very disjointed educational experience for kids so that they're reading Charlotte's Web three times and they never get to Tom Sawyer or they never get to some of the other books. So not having a clear systemic way of identifying what kids need to learn when has really harmed kids particularly poor kids, who tend to move around a lot. Mm. So even if a school is coherent, the district often is not, or the state is not, or, you know, certainly the country is not. Um, Okay.
1: Karen, I want you to hold that thought. Sure. Because we're going to take a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this.
0: You're listening to Educate on TalkZone.com. Back to Jonathan Jefferson.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Karen Chenoweth, on the topic of improving schools. Uh, Karen, first, uh, am I pronouncing your last name correctly?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Okay, okay. (laughs) Which is impressive
0: because most people don't.
1: Yeah, I, try, I I try to practice ahead of time I don't I don't like to do a whole show and then find out I had it wrong the whole time um, actually you what you were speaking on important uh, obstacles really for us uh, achieving success and in, in in your article you know how do we get there from here in, in the, the recent issue of educational leadership one of the things you mentioned is the fact that things such as tradition uh, scheduling that that uh, you know a lot of Things that appear simple are are really getting in the way of us applying what we know to be successful. Can you expand on that?
0: Sure. So um, I've I've talked to a lot of very skilled principals who have led enormous improvement in their schools, and you know I'll I'll say, well, what's the first thing you did? I reorganized the master schedule is often the um, the first thing that they say. So, for example, Ware Elementary in Kansas. It was one of the first schools in Kansas to be put on improvement in 2001. And um, the district put in a new principal, Deb Gustafson. And this was a very broken school in a lot of ways. There were a lot of uh, discipline issues. The building itself was filthy. Uh, She walked into the building and, like, just got hit with the smell of urine mm. in fact she walked into her office and sat down and cried. Um, that's not an unusual experience for principals I think um, who walk into broken schools they it, it becomes an overwhelming challenge but one of the things she uh, noticed as when once she got the school cleaned up over the summer, but she noticed that um, the teachers had for many years arranged things so that each class would go to the bathroom for 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon. That's half an hour of instructional time lost a day. That's 90 hours of instruction over the course of a year. Mm. This, but this had been kind of the standard way that the teachers had handled bathroom breaks and they had no sense of urgency around time. These are kids. I mean, all kids need as much instruction as we can possibly get them, but her kids were in particular need because they were very, very low performing. They couldn't read, they couldn't do math, and they were losing 90 hours a year to um, bathroom breaks. So she mm-hmm. she reorganized the master schedule in such a way that um, reading groups were very targeted so that kids got the full 90 minutes of instruction instead of 20 minutes of instruction and the rest of the time kind of wandering around the classroom uh, waiting for the teacher. So really using time, making sure that uh, the master schedule um, gets uh, kids to where they need to be, but also teachers. So teachers need time to collaborate, and they often don't get it. Uh, so Another thing that elementary school principals often do, uh, the first thing they do is instead of allowing the specials teachers to organize the schedule, because that is a, a standard way elementary schools do it, they made sure that every grade level had specials at the same time. So, you know, so all third graders are either in music, art, PE, whatever specials the school has at the same time. That then permits the third grade teachers to collaborate um, at, at that time instead of doing simply uh, simply doing individual lesson plans. Um, at the high school level, the scheduling is hugely important because you often have and most high schools, I think I, I shouldn't say most high schools. I think very often high schools, the first week of classes, you can see lines of kids outside the um, the counselor's office with kids saying, oh, my schedule screwed up. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in algebra two and I never took algebra one or I'm in guitar one and I wanted to be in PE or, you know, I mean, whatever it is, those schedules are screwed up because the schedule has been often the schedule is assigned to a guidance counselor or to a math teacher who has a facility for puzzles, Mm -hmm. it's not seen as the central way instruction is organized. And so it becomes, you know, kind of a random act. And it takes a couple of weeks before kids are actually in the right classes. That's a loss of instructional time. So this question of scheduling is hugely important and, Getting it done, leaders. What I call getting it done, leaders. The leaders of of schools that are really high performing or rapidly improving, they spend a lot of time of their time making sure that schedules are correct. So, so, but that's not the tradition in schools. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, my kids' high school, the principal assigned the master schedule to, uh, you know, a, a, an assistant an assistant principal who really didn't understand instruction very well. And so Mm. he didn't make that a central, um, a central value, but like budgets, budgets are also expressions of instructional value. Um, And, and it's often, it's often seen as kind of an answer, you know, Oh man, I have to do the budget too you know can you believe it instead of thinking of budgets as the way we express our values or how we value instruction through the use of our money so uh i just was in a school the other day that has shown some very nice improvement it's got a long way to go it's it it's it 3 years ago it was one of the lowest performing schools in virginia and it's made some very nice progress the principal the principal told me that he walked in and um, the janitorial supplies, they had endless um, amounts of, you know, one chemical that was inappropriate to use in a, in a school and didn't have the actual uh, uh, supplies that it actually needed to keep the school clean. Mm. So, you know, there's a, you know, it's, it's, kind of letting budgets be an afterthought and a, and a bother and, you know, budgets and schedules be, be kind of, oh, we have to do that too, instead of seeing it as a real central part of the way instruction is organized. So if, if a school has a math program and the data does not show that it is useful or helping kids actually learn, over the summer you need to buy a new math program or you have to figure out some way to improve that math program and that is a budgetary decision. Do you see what I mean?
1: I do and I would, my, my concern was this, that in addition to uh, tradition, uh, which impacts also on scheduling, uh, let me give you this example. Like we know that um, acquisition of language is, is, is much more effective during the, the early years. And yet most schools, at least schools I'm aware of, especially here in New York, don't start language instruction until seventh or eighth grade. And I just find, OK, why don't we move all of the language teachers down to the K through three where the students are going to have a better uh, chance of acquiring the language? And then you get rebellion. You know, <laughs> you know, teachers are like, no way. I don't want to teach those younger kids. It's almost like forget research, forget what we know. Um, tradition and what's comfortable for the teachers um, and I'm not anti-teacher, I'm just giving this as one example, um, but oftentimes it's things like that that stand in a way of doing what works. Uh, do you concur or am I taking it in a different direction?
0: Well, I think I think, no, I, I agree with what you're saying, but but it's, it's become, it, we've allowed education to be a personal question instead of an evidence-based question. So Frankly, if, if the kids are doing great with the way things are, then you don't have to change, right? The only reason we know things have to change is because the kids aren't doing great. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to do great as long as we keep doing the same things we're doing. We know what the results are of what we're doing. The results are what we have. So if we want different results, we have to change. Mm-hmm. And that involves some experimentation, that involves some, you know, uh, 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 what the kids call guess and check, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, does, you know, so the question is, would that work? If we took seventh grade language teachers and put them in third grade, would that help? And there's only one way to answer that question, and that is to try it, see what the results are. See if we can figure out why we got those results, and then keep adjusting. But one of the things that one of the traditions of education is that we don't do that. We adopt a philosophy, and then we just hold to it. Um, and if the kids don't succeed with that philosophy, it's the kid's fault or the parent's fault. <laughs> instead you- of instead of saying, "Hmm, okay, that didn't work. Let's let's try something new."
1: Yeah, see I'm surprised at how quickly our time is going. But would you also agree that trying new things really takes courage, and it takes courage from the leadership?
0: Yes, absolutely. And it takes it takes courage on the part of everyone because you have to first you a certain amount of intellectual courage because you have to admit that what you're doing isn't perfect. And by the way, there is no such thing as perfect. There's no one program that will work for all kids. There's no one practice that will work for all kids. You have to kind of acknowledge that and say, okay, so 75% of my kids learned what I was trying to get them to learn. That's great. What am I going to do for the next 25%? Mm -hmm. So it's not that teachers are doing a bad job. It's just that nothing that they do is ever going to be perfect. Um, and so acknowledging that and being open to trying new things and testing those hypotheses. Well, you know, so those tw- 25%, maybe if I gave them another lesson, that would help.
1: Okay. You know what, Karen, yeah. that's... The, yeah. that's the, I, I That's an excellent point for us to finish on. Clearly, I need you on on, on the show again or or we need to discuss again because there's so much more that I wanted to uh, discuss with you. Um, We have been speaking with Karen Chenoweth, writer-in-residence at the Education Trust and co-author of Getting It Done, Leading Academic Success in Unexpected Schools. Karen, where can listeners go to learn more about you and to purchase your books?
0: Well, uh, they can go to Harvard Education Press and look, uh, look at my name, Chenoweth, C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H, and you can buy my books there, or you can go to Education Trust, edtrust.org, and uh, that's where I work, and look at all the amazing resources. We just um, developed a new website, so um, so whoever goes there right now will see Uh, the benefits of a brand new website with lots of information, lots of resources.
1: Excellent. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next time as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors.